We are in the middle of a few weeks of conversations uh, that we're calling unrecognizable, looking at the stories of people not seeing Jesus clearly, of, of seeing Jesus but not seeing Jesus, of, of looking but not recognizing him right away. And we find that the, the same is true of us today. We can miss Jesus right in front of us, and we can do it frequently, even daily. And so today, uh, last week, we looked at Mary outside. A few of these stories are post-resurrection uh, stories, and a few of them are surprising stories elsewhere in the, uh, in the Gospels. But, uh, but last week, we looked at Mary, like Jess reminded us of. This week, uh, I want to talk about, I, I want us to talk about walking a little bit uh, and thinking about what happens when we walk together. I, I wonder sometimes how much of our humanity we lose because we don't walk places anymore. We hop into our cars, we turn on the radio, we often turn on our navigation systems, uh, make sure the volume's up, and then we complain about traffic for the rest of the trip. Something happens when you walk. You think in new ways. Uh, You ruminate, you notice. You settle down enough to be open to things. Uh, I went on a really long walk this week. Uh, on Monday, we changed our, I changed my work schedule because I had made a promise to my sons uh, that we had not gotten around to yet uh, this summer. And so we, uh, on Wednesday morning, we got up at 5 a.m. and we, uh, we hit the road to the Appalachian Trail. And for the next two days, we hiked 25 miles with our packs and everything that we needed on our backs on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And, uh, and it was a lot of hours just walking, a lot of hours talking. And something beautiful, it was glorious, up and down mountains, even just Pennsylvania, nothing, nothing spectacular in terms of what we might look at with our national parks, but so spectacular when we have the eyes to see. Beautiful, beautiful glimpses of rushing streams and rocky outcroppings. And there was something simple, let me tell you, walking together clears your head in good ways. And I got back. And I opened up my phone and I saw all the pain in our world again this week. And it was rough. But I was reminded of a story of others walking. You see, Jesus, Jesus walked a lot. And, and you can say, well, everybody walked a lot in the ancient Near East, and you'd be right. But we are told specific stories about Jesus walking frequently in the gospel, especially Luke. Luke loves to use phrases like, uh, along the way, and as he was walking, and as he went. Because there are these moments with Jesus that happen in the middle of a walk, okay? And, uh, and the one that we're going to look at today is, is that, that specific, uh, one of those specific stories. And it happened after the resurrection of Jesus, but before Jesus had really been seen yet, okay? And this is in Luke uh, 24. And so let's just uh, take a look uh, at, at the story. Now that same day, and what they mean when they say that same day was that some of the disciples had found the tomb empty, earlier that morning. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know we're going to have a conversation about something that we call, the biblical story that we call the Emmaus Road, or the walk on the Emmaus Road, okay? But what's really interesting is that because only one of the disciples is named, and it's not one of the main ones, we can forget the movement that Jesus was leading at this point. Uh, we're going to find out that, that one, of this, one of these travelers is a, a man named Cleopas, 
Um, he's mentioned also in John, it's spelled Clopas without the E, but every scholar pretty much agrees, same thing. Names were spelled in all sorts of different ways back at that point, so it's not a biggie. And we don't know who the other one was, but we're told about his wife in John. So it very well, we often envision two men for whatever reason, but it very well could have been Cleopas and his wife. I think that's likely because they were walking together, traveling from one place to another, and we know that they were together following Jesus. Uh, but... That's not the point. The point is that these were two mostly unnamed people that were actually that morning with the 12 disciples. Unnamed, never noticed. People that had had conversations with Jesus, that knew Jesus well, that were good friends, that had lived with Jesus for weeks or months traveling. Okay, so these, are, these might be unnamed disciples more or less in our book, but they're by no means insignificant in the movement. And I think sometimes we really only think that it was 12 disciples and maybe f- the four Marys or <laughs> however many Marys are in the, uh, in, the, in the New Testament that are mentioned frequently. And it wasn't. It was a bigger movement than that. So when we talk about what happens here, know that these are not just some bystanders that had some interest in the story. These were people, people who were deeply emotionally in, and, and physically invested in the movement of Jesus. Okay, so let's get into the story. Now that same day, the day that the tomb had been seen empty and there was a lot of questions about what it was all about, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're on a seven-mile journey, not that long, probably taking their time, but you could get there in three hours certainly. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Everything meaning the story of Jesus and the crucifixion and everything beyond that. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now last week we talked about why Mary couldn't see Jesus. It would be a little bit insincere to talk about why these guys were were we're not able to see Jesus because we have what we call a divine passive, which means there's, there's a, a real hint that it was God that was keeping them from being able to see, that, that, it, was, that it wasn't the right time yet. They were kept. It's not that they um, missed it. It's that they were kept from seeing. Okay, so, so what happens is that they walked along and Jesus joins them. God, I love it, God takes the step toward them. Okay, they're walking along, but God joins the conversation of of his own initiative, okay? And he asks them, he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Oh, sorry, next slide, here we go. What were you discussing together as you walked along? And they, they stood still. You see the emotional response here? This is not, this is not head knowledge. What are, you, what are you talking about? And they just stop. Their faces downcast. It's so hard to bring up the story again because the story is so personal and so painful to them. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem, who was going to redeem Israel. And and what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels 
who had said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Lots of confusion. We don't know what exactly is happening, but let us bring you up to date. Do you see the irony here? You see how incredible this is? The travelers think that Jesus is what? The, the only one that doesn't know what's going on, right? They think he's the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on. And, and Jesus is what? He's literally the only one who knows exactly what's going on. So, so there's this almost, now we know the story. We know it's joyful. They're, they're mourning. They're grieving. We know the hope. But it's almost written in a comical way. Tell me. Tell me what you know. <laughs> oh, oh, it's just this hard story. How, how do you not know? Where have you been? I just imagine Jesus' eyebrows slightly raising that question. Where have you been? Oh, I haven't been around for a couple days. So the story, it goes on, but, but the thing that, that we need to notice here is in the midst of their not being able to recognize Jesus, what they say is that they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And, and what they're subtly saying is, clearly that didn't happen because redeeming Israel looked like one thing. It looked like a new king being crowned and it looked like political freedom almost certainly through the, an overthrow of the Roman government. And so there was an understanding of people who would have known the scriptures very well of what the kingdom coming looked like. And it looked very physical. And it was, it was not, not presence-based at all. It was not subversive at all. It was very much about fixing, like Jess said a moment ago, this desire to fix things instead of understanding that maybe the way that Jesus was going to fix things, maybe the nature of the kingdom that Jesus had talked about for three years was still not being understood even by those who were the closest to him. There was no understanding of the broad redemption of all things, only the redemption of one nation. Not the deep transformation of individuals, but simply overthrowing the oppressor. So no one recognized Jesus even when he was in front of them before he died. So there's this confusion. What's true and what's not, they're asking. They say, we heard this story about Jesus being alive. That's pretty hard to believe. Then some others checked it out, and they just found an empty tomb. There was plenty of belief in spirits and in ghosts at this time. So the idea that, well, maybe what they saw was a vision, that certainly doesn't mean that Jesus is alive. Um, In fact, three days was the understanding of how long the spirit dwelt with the body. And so so when they say what's, what's more... It's been three days since this happened. They're saying it's kind of unique because even if there was a vision, we won't get too much into this, but even if there was a vision, then that, the spirit should pretty much be, be gone <laughs> from the body. Okay, and so, so there's all of this confusion. What's true? What's not? And so what happens? Jesus, he speaks. He says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. It's he, he opened the scriptures. When when Jesus uh, explains the scriptures, what what is uh, mentioned when it happens again at the end of this chapter in, uh, in 2445, it says he opens their minds. He was talking to the rest of the disciples. So opening the scriptures, 
is akin to this idea of, of opening their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. All right. So this is a huge key to recognizing Jesus. The first step of these disciples recognizing Jesus was that Jesus helped them understand their own story. He helped them understand the scriptures. We're told that the scriptures are living and active. Okay, we are told that there is something alive about them, that they can spring to life in certain ways, but we also know that the scriptures are very complicated, and the scriptures are easily misused. So, so even with people who knew the scriptures very well, they did not see that what had happened was foretold and was a part of the story. So Jesus, and I don't imagine, I don't imagine Jesus opening one verse in Isaiah 40 and saying, look at this. This, this is me. I imagine Jesus talking a grand narrative of what God's heart was from the beginning in the garden and what the prophets continued to point out that God would one day do and what the kingdom and the nature of God looked like, which was self-sacrificing and suffering over and over and over until they could not ignore that all the pages of the scriptures were dripping with Jesus. That there was a movement that was happening. We're told in Hebrews that the Son, meaning Jesus, directly, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Okay? Colossians tells us that the Son is the image of the invisible God, and in him all things are held together. That he was before all things. The book of John says, calls Jesus the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was not only with God, present, Trinitarian theology, but was God. The word was God. So, so we are told over and over in John 8, Jesus gets really intense with the Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Which is taking the name of Yahweh. There's so much here with Jesus saying, listen, the story is moving in a certain direction. Jesus reveals uh, in, in John 5, he has this intense conversation again. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But... Because they were experts at the scriptures. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So, so what, we're, what we're seeing of what Jesus does is, is there's this movement of what the Bible is, is heading toward. It's not a flat book. It's a dynamic book. And it culminates in Jesus okay? There, this movement of, of the Bible pointing toward something more and more, and Jesus begins to help them see that, all right? And so, so what happens as he's doing this is um, viewing, viewing the light, viewing the scriptures in light of Jesus means that we begin to work backwards through the lens of Jesus being the clearest expression of God that we have, all right? And so why is understanding the scriptures in this way <clears throat> in the right way, so important. Well, first of all, how you see God affects how you see everything in the world. It affects how you treat people. The Bible can be used to prop up whatever we want it to prop up, anything, if we don't practice Jesus as the absolute center. So we need Jesus to open the scriptures and remind us that they're about him. And we need Jesus to do that so that maybe we don't start to think that the scriptures are actually about us, and our greatness, 
it happened this week, friends. I don't want to talk about this kind of stuff at all, believe me. But it happened this week. We had a high-ranking government official quote Hebrews 12 and talk about running the race with perseverance and fixing our eyes. And the scriptures say Jesus. And he replaced it with the words old glory. It doesn't matter political persuasion. <laughs> That's taking something sacred and turning it profane. That's, it's, the definition of that is blasphemy. That is not Christian faith. We do not put anything on the same level of Jesus, not our flag, not our country. And so, so what we fix our eyes on, when, when Jesus is the one setting our lens here, then we understand that the scriptures are about the kingdom of God, not our own kingdoms, however we want to build them up in our lives. Not personal, not familial, not national. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that transcends those boundaries where everyone becomes a brother and sister and a citizen of the kingdom if they desire to walk together with Jesus. And so it changes how we view the scriptures because you can do anything you want with the Bible. It is a complex book written over the course of thousands of years that has slavery and murder and a lot of other bad things that I'm not even going to get into right now. And it's been used, unfortunately, in so many ways that the reason it is so easy to misunderstand the scriptures and we must let Jesus teach us. And we must, we use the lens of Jesus to see the scriptures, but we also see that the scriptures point us to Jesus. <laughs> so he's on both sides. All right? And it's not, um, it's not always obvious like the example that I gave. Sometimes in our lives, it's just hard to know how to approach the Bible. It really is. And so, so what we do is we shine the light of Christ on each passage. And we ask the questions, how might God be working in a way that looks like the culmination that we see in Jesus? How is this, how is this a part of the journey where people are moving toward what we see Jesus as being the fullness of? Um, kids, you have one of these things that you got today. It's a little pen. All right? And there's a little white tab on it that you can pull out. And that turns, that allows the batteries to touch. And if you open it up, it's a white little marker. And, and this is a horrible example, but if you write something somewhere and then you push the little button, you can actually see the writing and it's invisible. And so you can write on paper. I'm just going to encourage you to write on paper. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I don't want to get myself or any of you poor parents. I can't believe Pastor Keith said that. And, but, but anyways, what I want you to do is you can, why don't you make a little design and then you can show your parents or whoever you're with, your grandparents, whatever, and you can show them later when you shine the light on it. It's not a secret, but you have to have the right light to see it illuminate. So the scriptures, I don't like talking about the scriptures like there's a secret code, even though Paul, Paul does give some of that language, talks about we have been given the secret. Uh, but, but I don't want to talk about it like it's, like it's a code that can't be cracked. I believe that the Spirit of Jesus jumps out of the pages of our Bibles. However, if we don't have the lens to see it, if we aren't able to shine the light of Christ on it and read backwards, what a gift we've been given that we know how the story ends so that we can understand the rest of the story. The Emmaus pair did not know how the story ended, but Jesus did. So Jesus could help them reevaluate and understand. And we're told throughout the Gospels that when something or another happened, the disciples remembered what Jesus had said. They didn't get it until they remembered, and oh, it starts to make sense. God is working through his people, through an imperfect people who had imperfect understandings of God, 
throughout the Bible, this is, not, this is not heresy to say that people had imperfect understandings of God. Jesus says things that are in the Bible, but I'm helping clarify by saying this. Jesus helps redirect their understandings. People did not have a full understanding of what God was up to. They tried their best, but that's part of the beauty of it. But we're allowed to admit that because now we have the light of Christ to see fully. Let's take advantage of that. So, um, so yeah, when, when this happens, when we begin, when, when we let Jesus speak understanding to the scriptures, we understand that the Bible moves toward Jesus. What that does is it, uh, let's see. Oh, boy. All right. All right. Does that make sense? His, his mind's getting blown. So it opens our minds, right? So that's, that's the story here, that Jesus opens our minds. That's number one in the story. Beautiful, beautiful glimpse. Jesus opening our minds. Okay, so um, to sum up, we need Jesus to open the scriptures to us to give us clarity for how to interpret a complex library of books and see God's heart and to keep us from manipulating the Bible for our own purposes, Okay. Very important stuff. All right, let's move on. The last part of the story. It's not a long part, but it's really interesting. Um, the last part of the story, the walking is over. So the first part of the story, they're walking, they're talking. Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures. But then, as they approached the village they were going to, Jesus continued as if he was going on further. Jesus is really having a good time here, isn't he? He's just really loving keeping them in the dark. Yeah, now I'm, I'm going to go on further, but, it, but it's evening. So that's a very rare thing to say. So if someone in a Jewish culture was traveling together and it becomes nighttime and they say, I'm going to keep going, it just did not happen frequently. It was, it was considered, it would be a horrible sign of a lack of hospitality for someone not to say, please stay with us. Um, and it would also be dangerous for the individual to go out into the, into the night alone. So... So Jesus continues on, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. They give a good response. Way to go, guys. Uh, so, so after this, um, when he was at the, so, so he went in to stay with them. Here's where it gets really fun. When he was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Before you get to the next sentence, I want you to take pause and understand that culturally, the guest was never the host. So they sit down for a dinner, and whoever the host was, whether it was the owner of the house that they were staying, or one of the traveling companions that had kind of taken the lead, whatever, they would be the ones to break the bread and give thanks. But at some point, right at that moment, Jesus says, you know what, I'll take it from here. And so Jesus takes the bread, and he says words of thanksgiving and blessing to God, and then he breaks it. And what happens when he is at the table and he breaks bread? Literally, we think communion, this sounds a lot like communion, and it is, but it's like what the word means. He's communing at this point with his disciples. And he breaks bread, and then their eyes were opened, and they see and they recognize. I love, his, their eyes were opened. We've had the scriptures being opened, minds being opened, and now we get eyes being opened. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And Jesus says, my work here is done. 
and he disappears from their sight. But that's not the important part. We know that there's all sorts of things about the resurrected body that are fascinating and interesting, and that's a different message. Um, because we're told that it, well, that's a different message. So they recognize him at the moment that he breaks bread. There is an understanding that helps us recognize Jesus. We start to understand the story of God and where it leads. But understanding is not enough. Understanding the story of Jesus is different than experiencing the presence of Jesus. Okay? So, so there's understanding and there's experience. And this experience, what we're told, how it happens is, here we go. We're really getting intense right now. Okay, we got a couple chairs. Boom. We have some bread that has been broken. All right. So experience happens at the table. Experience happens with Jesus when they are sitting and hanging out and sharing a meal together. And when that happens and when Jesus feeds them, when Jesus gives them nourishment, not information nourishment, but presence nourishment, that's when all of a sudden they say, we see you. We see you. And all of a sudden, right, all of a sudden it says their eyes were opened. That's a creepy, creepy face. Um, It says their eyes were opened. We see now. We see. Communion is absolutely crucial to our experience of Jesus in discipleship. The information is important. But the information of who Jesus is, understanding the story, it leads us to experiencing Jesus in in his fullness. The only way we're going to keep our souls intact now and in the coming months is by truly keeping communion with Jesus at the center of all we do. There is so much heartbreak right now that the only way we keep our souls intact is keeping Jesus and communion with Jesus at the center of all we do. Here's the problem. Almost every single American in the United States would agree with that statement. But nobody's going to do it. Because that requires allowing Jesus to, to tear down our personal kingdoms and our soul allegiances and the walls that they've built up. And we don't want to do that kind of hard work. So we, we keep letting our own comfort win instead of having truly intentional conversations with God and with others. We, we keep letting social media and its toxicity pull us away from our own humanness and the humanness of others. We keep giving preferences to numbing agents like entertainment or food or alcohol, whatever yours might be, to a point that we don't have to deal with our pain or bring it to Jesus. Instead of prayer, instead of service to others, because we really haven't had our eyes opened yet, not fully. That only comes from times of true communion with the real Jesus himself, and that won't happen often unless we reach a point of desperation. My, my own personal experience and this is kind of how we're going to wrap up because uh, I really am excited to tell you about something that we're doing as a church in a couple weeks. My own experience as a youth pastor, I was um, a youth pastor for six years, and 
<clears throat> after a couple months of, of kind of learning the ropes, I became fairly competent as being a youth pastor. I had a big staff to support me, so I didn't have this huge burden of leadership. I just oversaw the students at the church that I worked at. Um, and we had things go really, really well, and I was fast-paced. And I had a lot of good understanding of the scriptures. I really did. I was educated well, and I, I, I had people of integrity speaking into my life. But, but I moved fast, and I never slowed down, and I got away with it until we came to Delaware to plant a church. And planting a church is a different story, or at least it was for me in my life. Because all of my insecurities, all of the areas that were not strengths of mine, all of my relational capacity, it all got tapped out. And I was left completely desperate. And I was left with kind of a ragged, like a ragged reality of myself that was torn apart. I wanted to quit frequently. Um, but, but more than that, I just felt tired all the time. This huge burden all the time, all the time, all the time. And so it, that experience, it brought me to places of seeking Jesus in the wilderness. It brought me to places of silence, of being removed from people, removed from lots of words, and just sitting still, sometimes for an hour at a time, just seeking Jesus, which was, for a personality like mine, incredibly difficult. And then that became day-long retreats just dwelling and hanging out with Jesus in silence. And now I take multiple days in a row every year to just be silent and still before Jesus. And instead of that being painful and difficult or boring, it actually has become thrilling because I see things about myself that God reveals. I understand things about God's heart in new ways and it's changed me. Uh, there's less compartmentalizing in my life. It's changed my prayer journey and how I approach God. I have a long ways to go in all of these spiritual formation areas, but it's really, really changed who I am by learning how to slow down and learning this communal, this communal peace with Jesus. It's changed how I relate to other people. In late September, we are going to be embarking on an eight-week journey as a church, and I'm really, really looking forward to this. Uh, we're going to take a course together. An emotionally healthy discipleship course is what it's called. And don't get bogged down by the wording. Uh, what it really is, is a deeper opportunity to slow down with Jesus, both in the scriptures and in prayer, and to, to be together on that journey as we learn that. And so, so for eight weeks, uh, we're going to do it um, digitally because of all of our young parents. We're going to allow for that. And so we're going to do it on Zoom on a weeknight for eight weeks, for 90 minutes a week. And... Um, even though that might sound challenging to do the Zoom thing, I, we've learned a couple things over, over the months. Number one is if the, if the content is really high and the, and the structure is tight, that's way easier than hanging out and the challenge of hanging out. If we're doing a study together where we're actually digging in, there, it's way more compelling than, the, than just the idea of, oh my gosh, I can't believe we have to Zoom again. So I want to just encourage you to, to get past that with me. But, uh, but interestingly, I've wanted to take us through this for years, uh, ever since I met Pete Scazzaro, who, who wrote the thing and founded it. But, um, and he's a, been a pastor for 20 years in New York City. Jess and Matt actually were a part of his church for a short time while they lived there. <clears throat> but, um, but I didn't for two reasons. And both of them are right about my own insecurities. So I didn't suggest that we as a church journey through this for two reasons. Number one, I felt like I had to create absolutely everything that we do as a church or else, like, I'm not doing my job. It was total pride. And the second thing is that I know a whole bunch of you are cynical, or at least have been for much of your life, 
And so the idea of actually journeying through a curriculum that was not made by us also brings up walls or whatever. And I look at that and I say, oh my goodness, everything that we do, we're going to do our way. We're going to do it in a, in a way that's relaxed and, and approachable and high dialogue and everything. We need to do this. So we talked with the leadership team and we said, yes, let's dive in for the fall. Let's really embrace this. Um, it's going to be such a relational experience that we'll be doing, you know, some smaller breakout groups and everything that, uh, that even within, within that, um, it's going to, for those, those weeks, it's going to take the place of our, of our meal communities. Um, because we want to make sure that everybody is able to participate if they want to. We're underwriting all the resource costs um, so that we can do it together with, without any burden to anybody. Uh, but I'm, I'm really excited. There's no commute. That's one of the nice things with busy schedules and kids needing to get to bed and all of that stuff. Um, but I'm encouraging you to, to make it work. I'm not going to give many, many more details. You're going to get a text like right now. Um, and that'll give you a chance to just reply with information. If you're on our text list, you can reply and, and you'll be sent to uh, some more information and website and you can take care of it there. But, but uh, what, I, what I want to talk about is that I'm again in a season of desperation, but positive one. I'm in a season where I so want to hear the voice of Jesus explaining the scriptures. I want to hear the voice of Jesus praying for me, breaking bread with me. I want to be grounded enough and at peace enough in my own spirit and to, to, so that I can be of real benefit in the world. So many of us, we need that right now. The time is right. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to walk and talk and listen and eat with Jesus. Learn new habits. I'm willing to give time and energy in new ways, to be honest in new ways. I'm willing. I want to learn to walk slowly and to take that kind of journey to Emmaus and meet Jesus as I go fresh. The great thing is Jesus is always looking to bring groups along in that process. So, are you up for taking the slow route to soul restoration as well with me is the question. Um, I hope so. You'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. So I hope you take this story seriously, recognizing Jesus, walking on the road where Jesus opens the scriptures, opens minds, eating at the table where Jesus opens eyes, both are crucial, both are a part of our discipleship, and Jesus will give us understandings of him and an experience of him if we keep walking, if we're open to it. So let's pray that we can recognize him in our midst in every way. Lord, we are grateful for these stories. We're grateful for the humble examples of other people who don't see Jesus, because if we're honest, we miss you a lot too. Thanks for revealing the beauty of what you do and who you are through the scriptures. Thanks for meeting us exactly where we are today. Lord, help shape us into people who know your character and your heart so fully that we can participate in your hope for the world with all the grace that you've given us. That we can be at peace in the deepest places of our spirits that we can love well like you do, not compartmentalized like our world often acts, but fully. So take us deeper with you today. I pray that this is a refreshing beginning to a deeper journey of slowing down with you. Speak to us. Amen.